Good morning. On this next to last day of September 2022, my name is Michael McCusker. I start today's program with something on my mind about the latest threat by a ranting dictator to blow up the world because he is losing a war he started and his chained masses seem to be in the initial states of revolt. And I didn't title it, so I'll just start it off. Wars are humanity's most compelling and dramatic business, and as a result, arouse and disturb generations far into the future. We homo sapiens have made war more ardently than love. War is humanity's revenge against death. We furiously kill and destroy in our rage that we will die. Of course, our rage obliterates each other, but the greater contradiction is that we have rarely thought of others as part of ourselves. Paradoxically, we have never been so united, so able to surmount tremendous obstacles as when we make war against each other. War provides our meager lives a transcendent vitality that daily living and its squalid defeats squeeze out of us. We feel that we are a vital part of great events and that our normally diminished lives serve a great purpose and that we are a significant part of history, not to be outdone by histories that proceed or will extend beyond our own. The price is high. It has always been exorbitant, but never beyond our acceptance of warfare as an unvarying consequence of living. War seems to have always been regarded as a natural phenomenon, as natural as an earthquake or flood or a bowel movement. Inhumanity is exclusively human. History seldom mentions compassion as a vital ingredient of the structuring of civilization. Our history has literally been of the most fierce and acquisitive among us, sweeping away the more gentle. It was that way when our hairy ancestors stuck pointed sticks into each other. It is that way now when weapons of our design are able to reduce entire continents to ashes. Yet the very quality that forced human rule over the earth, our relentless and ruthless violence, is the major obstacle to our continued existence. Questions of how to end warfare are not quite as popular as they perhaps should be. The few who do raise the issues of abolishing war are generally regarded as odd, possibly dangerous, and certainly unrealistic. Pacifism smacks of weakness and appeasement, and pacifists are more often than not accused of collaboration with an enemy. At best, pacifists have been dismissed as dupes. In the 77 years since the advent of the nuclear age, humanity has not learned to live with the bomb. 
we have refused to face the horror it represents to ourselves and our possible descendants. Yet we know that the tremendous stockpiles of thermonuclear warheads, each tremendously more powerful than the first atomic bombs, are scattered throughout the world. We know there are enough hydrogen bombs to annihilate four million cities. And we know that the deaths of 100 million human beings have been predicted within the first 15 minutes of a wholesale nuclear attack. And there is little doubt, 77 years into the nuclear age, that enough nuclear weapons exist to wipe out human civilization and most likely humanity itself. At this exact moment, a single human being, a dictator empowered by weapons of mass destruction, is threatening their use, warning the world at large not to interfere with his failing conventional war against a very small little country that is successfully thwarting his attempt to swallow it into his regime. The great humanitarian Albert Schweitzer warned the world a century ago in 1923, quote, it is clear now to everyone that the suicide of civilization is in progress, unquote. Wherever there is lost the consciousness that every human being is an object of concern simply by being human, the advance to fully developed inhumanity is only a question of time, Schweitzer said. Ten years after Dr. Schweitzer despaired the suicide of civilization, Adolf Hitler rose to power in Germany. Within a dozen years, his Nazi executioners had obliterated 15 million lives in death camps scattered over a conquered Europe. The war the Nazis and their Axis allies started littered more than half the earth with the corpses of nearly 60 million human beings. The final act of that war was the unleashing of the power contained within the atom as an instrument of warfare, and the smoke that formed into a mushroom-shaped cloud over the obliterated cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki will remain an emblem of horror until the demise of the human race, which, because of it, is menacingly near. And that was something I wrote. And now, by David Horowitz, Professor Emeritus of Portland State University, where he has taught U.S. cultural and political history since 1968. He made a speech to the American Humanist Society on the legacy of 9-11 and abbreviated it into two parts in the interest of brevity, quote-unquote, in case I might wish to read it on this program. So I start today with part one. 9-11, Culture War and the Pitfalls of History, a presentation by Professor David A. Horowitz, before the Humanists of Greater Portland, September 11th, 2022. Part 1. 9-11, 2001, the most traumatic event of U.S. history, 
offers insights into the law of unintended consequences, the role of fear in shaping policy, and the pangs of modernity. Bogged down by a domestic policy gridlock and declining public faith in government after 1994, President Bill Clinton faced a special prosecutor's investigation into financial dealings during his Arkansas governorship. The inquiry went nowhere but led to Clinton's impeachment by the Republican House in response to a sexual affair with a White House intern. The Senate failed to convict him, but Republican George W. Bush, a born-again Christian evangelical, benefited from the moral ambiguity of Clinton's personal behavior. Following a controversial 5-4 Supreme Court decision to halt a Florida recount over ballot irregularities, Bush squeezed out a narrow electoral college victory despite losing the national popular vote. The new vice president, Dick Cheney, was among the Vulcans, and that's a quote, in the national security bureaucracy intent on reversing Clinton's cuts in defense spending. In a reply of the Cold War, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice focused on updating missile defense systems, failing to appreciate the threat posed by rogue and stateless global terror groups such as Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda. During the summer of 2001, the administration ignored reports from counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark that bin Laden was preparing an attack, and that's a quote, on the U.S. and FBI agents warning that an Arab national in Minnesota was learning to navigate planes with no interest in landing got lost in the traffic. Later, analysis pointed to a lack of coordination between the CIA and FBI in connecting the dots, quote-unquote. On September 11th, 19 Islamic extremists affiliated with al-Qaeda, 15 of them Saudis, used box cutters to take over four airliners, forcing them into the Twin Towers of New York's World Trade Center and one into the Pentagon. A fourth plane headed for the Capitol crashed into a western Pennsylvania field with no survivors after the passengers stormed the cockpit to divert it from targeting the nation's symbol of democracy. Nearly 3,000 people died in the most lethal attack on U.S. territory in its history. U.S. intelligence had little understanding of a brand of terrorism rooted in the fundamentalist 18th-century Muslim sect hostile to the Enlightenment. Al-Qaeda had emerged after Islamic guerrillas had received subsidies from the Reagan administration to oust the Soviet Union from Afghanistan. The movement played upon Arab grievances over civilian casualties from Persian Gulf War bombing, the presence of American troops in Saudi Arabia, and U.S. support for Israel against the Palestinians. Yet al-Qaeda's main strength rested on calls for purity, personal duty, and solidarity, in contrast to the perceived decadence of global consumerism. Recruiting educated young migrants to the West in cyberspace sanctuaries 
It sought to unite the world's 1.36 billion Muslims in a jihad by waging combat against non-believer, and that's a quote, nation-states through assaults on civilian life. 9-11 was its prime recruiting poster. As an act of terror, the attack was designed to convince citizens that their government was unable to protect them. Bush responded by emphasizing that the enemy was terrorism, not an ideology, religion, or nationality. Bonding with firefighters and first responders, the president vowed to direct every resource to the disruption of the global terror network. When several hate attacks on American Muslims marred the early mood of national unity, Bush visited a mosque to counter these reprisals. The president's first official response, nevertheless, was the Patriot Act. The law permitted the government to retain foreign nationals on visa violations or minor charges and to monitor telephone and library records as well as email contacts, including those with U.S. citizens. This led to the deportation of thousands suspected of ties to terrorist organizations. Although critics objected to the law's seeming violation of civil liberties, the administration defended it as a necessary defense against further attacks, depicted as the first task of any government. Anxious to ensure safety, Democrats pushed for the creation of an Office of Homeland Security, a preventive agency that would coordinate intelligence on domestic threats, create a terror alert system, and manage airport security. Although NATO had invoked the only collective security alert in its history, Bush reviewed 9-11 as a military matter for the United States alone. He noted that the Islamist Taliban government in Afghanistan that succeeded the Soviets had welcomed bin Laden's base camps into the country and were still protecting them. With help from Afghan warlords and Pakistani troops, the campaign to overthrow the regime proceeded with bombing and counterinsurgency efforts by the CIA, special forces teams, and the U.S. Marines. The Taliban fell within weeks. In the process, 600 of its fighters were detained as stateless enemy combatants, quote-unquote, at the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo, Cuba. Their incarceration came under the authority of dubious White House legal memos that sanctioned murder, torture, or indefinite detention for defendants tried in U.S. military courts not subject to Geneva Convention protections for prisoners of war. By now, bin Laden was hiding in the mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan, possibly aided by military forces from both nations. At this point, Vice President Cheney and the Defense Department Vulcans renewed their interest in Iraq. Invoking American exceptionalism, and that's a quote, neoconservative hawks in the Republican Party viewed the breakup of the Soviet Empire as a result of U.S. armed prowess and moral will. Yet they believed that the erosion of military and executive power pointed to the loss of America's role as a great power and guarantor of world order. 
The potential spread of weapons of mass destruction, they insisted, made this even more dangerous, requiring unilateral preemptive military strikes if necessary. Donald Trump's spread of the big lie, quote-unquote, over the stolen, and that is also a quote, 2020 presidential election and the ensuing attack on the Capitol led by right-wing militia allies has cemented his role as a cult leader. Perhaps 25% of the electorate now seeks to impose social morality codes on adversaries, deny the protection of the law for those they despise, and purge public education of threatening ideas. Following Trump, the Republican Party has sought to abrogate the voting rights of those they do not see as real Americans. Several state legislatures are seeking to establish reviews of the 2024 election if the results do not go their way. A delegation of professional historians recently warned President Biden that the nation is under siege by people who no longer believe in democracy. Grounds for optimism, however, may rest with the estimated 40% of the electorate in the political center including many women and suburbanites. These may well be transactional voters willing to align with anyone who least threatens their values or interests. If so, they may provide the chance to transform American politics through coalition building. Theodore Roosevelt famously urged activism of the early 20th century to face life as it was, not as they thought it ought to be. Translated to today's world, when two-thirds of American adults lack a four-year college degree, the lesson is that boutique appeals to like-minded compatriots take on the danger of political hobbyism, a phenomenon Tufts scholar Eton Hirsch describes as entertainment politics. Coalitions, in contrast, allow participants to find common ground even when they disagree on some issues. The important thing is to frame goals within the sensibilities and interests of a broad band of the public. Democracy requires compromises, Barack Obama told Howard University students in 2016, even when you are 100% right. If you assume the mantle of moral purity, Obama warned, you are not going to get what you want and most likely retreat into cynicism and inaction. I take better every time, the former president explained, because you consolidate your gains and then you move on to the next fight from a stronger position. Framing common sense proposals that don't frighten or insult potential supporters is an important ingredient of successful politics. It is not what we say, but what the listener understands. Obama appreciated this when his speech at the 2020 Democratic National Convention acknowledged that black lives matter, no more, no less. Instead of preaching about the evils of the market economy or existing institutions, References to a well-regulated capitalism or common-sense reform have far better chances of support. 
polling of working class voters in the Midwest, for example, shows widespread endorsement of policies such as expanded Medicare, pre-K public schooling, a higher minimum wage, federal jobs programs, and taxes on the rich. Political journalist E.J. Dion has advanced such an agenda in Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country, written in 2020. Dion advocates visionary gradualism, quote-unquote, a strategic approach to establishing common ground between social justice activists and centrists. The goal would be the restoration of democratic values and the healing of social and economic wounds. To achieve both, however, Dion warns that activists must abandon unseemly moralism, understand the law of unintended consequences, and reject a belief in any single way forward. Recent developments offer the prospect of coalitions that can help erode the fear-based politics of an era defined by anticipated assaults on American life. They include tentative steps toward gun safety reform. In another instance, Kansas voters defeated a state ballot initiative constitutionalizing bans on abortion by arguing that the measure was an example of government overreach that violated conservative principles. Another sign has emerged in grassroots efforts by parents to defeat purges of public school curriculum threatening to deprive children of the educational tools required in a complex world. Still another has appeared in the Inflation Reduction Act's compromise package, ensuring lower health and prescription drug costs, and greater ability for homeowners and consumers to combat climate change. These may be incremental steps in dealing with challenging problems, but with much of the Republican Party deferring to a single figure whose loyalists seek to advance an extremist agenda that most Americans reject, the ultimate test of democracy and pursuit of the common good will undoubtedly be decided in forthcoming elections. Still, the voice of the people. And that was part one. Next week, part two, if the world has not been atomized yet. David Horowitz is also author of America's Political Class Under Fire, the 20th Century's Great Culture War. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk is engineer for this program. A quote by the late, great Philip Wiley. The sum total of human works does not equal in all parts put together the achievements of the life forms of plant and insect in a square foot of grass. And from the recently deceased English novelist Hilary Mantel, author of the exceptional trilogy of Thomas Cromwell, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, and The Mirror and the Light. The dead are more faithful than the living. For better or worse, they do not leave you. They last out the longest night. A noted woman singer says she has days in which she wishes to be in front of thousands of people shouting her name. A political journalist responds, 
that in his trade, a crowd screaming his name would be a sure sign they had a bucket of tar, feathers, and maybe a length of rope tied into a noose. 